All right, and welcome to the Something to Say podcast. I'm Chris, your host. I've given Sean, my co-host, some much-deserved time off as we come to an end of our season, wrapping up with our final episode. First, we'd like to thank all of our listeners, all of our people who have given us the success that we've had so far with this website. You can always find us at www.somethingtosay.com. That's something, T-W-O, say.com. So we're going to end our season on kind of a little mini episode. Uh, several episodes back, we had a special guest in talking about the car market, the car industry. Frank, we had overwhelming response to that episode. So we figured from time to time, we're going to offer you some more mini episodes like that. And we've chosen for today, the housing market. This is a time of year where people are getting tax refunds, they're getting stimulus money. And certainly I don't have to remind anyone what the housing market looks like these days. So we hope we're going to give you some useful information or just something really cool to listen to for a little bit. Now that we're coming out of the post-pandemic, we have a ton of great guests lined up, and we're going to be recording throughout the summer and coming back to you guys later this fall with hopefully even better shows than you've been listening to. So a couple quick stories. One, there's a couple who put an offer on a house in May 2020, and their uncle asked them when they were talking about it what the backyard was like. And their response was, we don't know. We didn't even see it. In fact, we only looked at the inside of the house for about 15 minutes before we decided to buy it. And we offered the sellers what they were asking, even though the house had been on the market for months. Now, if you're like this guy's uncle, you're thinking, this guy's an idiot. But as they say, our real estate broker wasn't allowed to come into houses with us in May 2020 because of strict and ever-changing COVID rules for brokers at the time. While we were looking at different houses that day, he was outside on his phone arguing with another broker about these rules. But during our walkthrough in August 2020, the day of the closing, we asked him what, you know, he would have told us if he had been able to see the house with us. You know, were we crazy to pay this offering price? And it was the opposite. He actually said, good for you. You would have never gotten that house at that price ever, even three weeks later. Story number two, uh, we'll call this couple Becky and Danny. They're newlyweds thinking about having kids, so they wanted to buy their own house or condo. But since January, they've been getting outbid by buyers left and right. They've looked at 110 homes, and they say it seems like everyone is getting 10 to 15 offers that day and getting sold for way over asking price, which we all know is true. And selling is just a matter of days. Danny says, you know, you're in an open house and someone rolls up in a 2020 Land Rover. You know it's all decked out, and you're like, oh, come on. You know, you just, it just definitely sucks to lose. So the couple says it seems like some of the winners are reckless. Their real estate agent told them that some winning bidders not only offer significantly more than the asking price, they also agree to skip the home inspection, offering to buy the house no matter what. Now, in general, increasingly, offering above asking price isn't even enough to win a bid in this ultra-tight pandemic housing market. You know, ask any realtor or buyer, and we're going to have a special guest on shortly to, to discuss that. So going above asking prices, that's just the first step in winning an offer. You know, the buyers increasingly are offering other enticements, including waiving inspections for hidden structural problems and providing free leasebacks to the seller or offering sellers to remain in the home between one to six months after closing free of rental charges. You know, the pandemic, it's prompted people to look for new homes, especially properties with home offices, with, with so much, you know, home teleworking and outdoor space, you know, given the confinements of the whole work from home trend that, that we're going to see for a long time, there's going to be a long ripple effect. 
And while existing homeowners can get eye-popping premiums for their properties, some are reluctant to sell because they worry about their ability to find a new home given rising prices, widespread lack of inventory, which is, you know, adding to the logjam in the supply of the available housing. Here's a couple other things to look at and consider. Almost 5 million millennials are turning 30 each year, entering the decade of their lives where they're settling down and looking to own their homes. And historically, low mortgage rates are helping to make home purchases more affordable for first-time buyers. But here's something you've got to remember. Go back to the housing crisis in the early, mid-2000s. Post-financial crisis, millennials either, when they were teenagers and the effect it had on their psyche, they either saw their parents lose their home, couldn't get a job, or had a lot of student debt. So millennials have a different mindset, and, and they're deferring their first home purchase much longer than previous generations. You know, about three in five home buyers are having to go above their budgets to buy a home, and more than four out of ten are waiving contingencies, according to Realtor.com in a survey earlier this year. Another two out of five spend more than a year on their real estate hunt, the survey is finding. There's there's just no inventory. So the real estate market surge in prices and demand is stirring up memories of the housing bubble leading up to 2006. The painful bursting of that boom, which fed into the Great Recession of 2008, is raising questions about whether the market is going to repeat history. But Lending standards are much tighter than they were prior to 2006, with buyers being required to provide tax data, paychecks, and other information to confirm they can actually afford a mortgage. And that that does decrease the likelihood of repeat housing crisis, experts say, but we could be on a bubble. Now, here's why. It's the polar opposite of what the companies faced during the subprime bust that began around 2007 when the housing market was gripped with a massive oversupply problem that it took almost a decade to correct. Construction of new homes collapsed in the aftermath of that crisis and never fully recovered. The supply of new homes remains very low even today. Essentially, what that means is construction companies have been underbuilding for the last 15 years. As of the end of February 2021, housing inventory tumbled by nearly 30% year over year to a record low of 1.3 million, according to the National Association of Realtors, and that's data that goes back to 1982. Last month, going back to May 2021, homes typically sold in 20 days, which is a record low. Let's talk about actual building of the homes for a moment before we bring in our guest, Bobby. Anyone who has taken some of their uh, stimulus money, tax money, even last year, bought a deck, done home improvements, built a home office. I don't have to tell you about the rising cost of lumber prices. 96% of builders surveyed in the National Association of Home Builders Survey report building materials as a top challenge, up 66% from the same survey in 2019. The number one culprit is a shortage of lumber, and we're going to explain to you what that actually is. Prices for lumber have skyrocketed in recent months because surging demand and shrinking supply, making it much more expensive to build new homes. Now, Throughout the, the, the pandemic, the United States has experienced shortages of medical materials, manufacturing products, and even consumer goods like toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Again, I don't have to tell anybody that. Now we're being gripped by a lumber shortage, which is causing prices to skyrocket. Look at these statistics. Lumber prices hit an all-time high of $1,686 per thousand board feet this month, an increase of 
listen to this, this is not a typo, 406%, an increase of 406% from the $333 it was trading at the same time last year. As a result, the price of a new single-family home has increased nearly $36,000 just for that component, again, according to the National Association of Home Builders. So now we're going to refer to Robert Barden, a professor of forestry and environmental resources and an associate dean for the extension at the College of Natural Resources to find out what's causing the lumber shortage and kind of go over the importance of lumber to the economy. And here's what we found out. And when we ask, you know, what is causing the lumber shortage and price surge, uh, Robert replies, the lack of lumber available in stores is less to do with a shortage of trees or even lumber production. What's driving the increase in lumber prices are recent convergence of Canadian lumber tariffs, increase in demand for home remodeling, building of homes brought on by the pandemic, and hiccups in supply-related transportation issues. At the beginning of the pandemic, demand for lumber was slightly down and mill inventories were down. But in the spring of last year, 2020, we saw people move on home improvement projects, purchase a home, or build a new home, causing an increase in demand for lumber. The industry impacted by the pandemic had to adjust their operations, which at first slowed production, resulting in less supply. The lack of transportation to move the lumber from mills to dealers is also playing a role in increasing lumber prices. The pandemic reduced the number of drivers and impacted rail transportation, making it difficult for mills to ship lumber to the dealers. Now, I'm not an expert on lumber, on real estate. I'm not a licensed realtor. And that's why we bring in people on the Something to Say podcast. We bring in people who have knowledge base that we can share with our audience that can give you guys tips, ideas. And I could have picked up a phone book and called 400 different realtors and maybe had 400 different interviews. In the case today, we have a good realtor, good friend of mine, Bobby, and he's going to offer some advice, some insight. If you're buying, refinancing, renting, just some really good base knowledge to help you out. And we're going to go ahead and jump into that interview. But before that, I want to tell you, if you really, and it has not so much to do with the pandemic, but if you want to just have a jaw-dropping experience of what the housing market looks like under different situations, I highly recommend a favorite movie of mine, uh, The Big Short. It's got Christian Bale, it's got Ryan Gosling, it's got Steve Carell, and I just sat there with my mouth open from beginning to end to get an understanding of kind of what happened to the housing market before the recession in the 2007 area. Um, but anyways, watch that after you've listened to this podcast. Right now, we're going to jump into our main guest and welcome Bobby to the show. Okay, now it's time for our feature interview here on the Something to Say podcast. So, you know, uh, several episodes back, we, we talked about how people were going to be coming into tax money, coming into whatever stimulus packages, and, and we gave you guys some great information on vehicles. And we definitely want to, you know, try and accomplish on this show giving you useful everyday information uh, other than some of the generic stuff we kind of get fed uh, on social media and separate some of the truth from the fiction from the facts. So today we're going to be talking about real estate, and really this could apply to anyone. You could be in an apartment looking to upgrade. You could be looking to sell, refinance, move to a different part of the country. Uh, and I certainly don't have that expertise, so here at Something to Say, we always bring in the experts. So today we are having a real estate expert. Bobby, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Chris. So uh, let's start with this uh, before we kind of break it down into the different categories of maybe what people's real estate or living needs are. Kind of give us a snapshot of of what the post-COVID real estate looks like. Everything from 
you know, everything like we were talking about in our pre-production uh, before this recording about everything from how people are looking virtually at homes to drones to sellers not necessarily wanting people in their house. Kind of what what changes has COVID forced on, on the real estate market for buyers and for sellers? Uh, so what we've really noticed, uh, you know, here in the Northeast, there's, you know, different time frames in which we see highs and lows in real estate. Uh, and back when COVID really started coming out, um, you know, in the springtime, we were anticipating coming into what would typically be a busy market. And then COVID hit and we really had no idea uh, what we were going to be expecting out of that. So, you know, going into what would normally be a busy springtime market for us was actually pretty slow um, out of the gate. You know, people were just nervous to to go out. They weren't, you know, they didn't really want to go and look for homes. And then, you know, on our listing side, we've got a lot of sellers that we would, you know, have already scheduled to go in, take pictures, do walkthroughs. You know, they were very hesitant about even us as real estate professionals to go into their home. And then the thought of having the potential for 20, 30, 40, 50 people in their home uh, on an open house and then random showings, you know, it, things kind of shut down. Um, and then what we would normally see is uh, a big bump in the market. So after that large bump that we would typically see, it kind of started off fairly slow. But as the spring and summertime markets went, we started to see a slow increase. And at the time, uh, interest rates were starting to fall quite a bit. So there was a lot of potential for buyers to come out there. But you still had the sellers who were a little hesitant to be putting their houses on the market. Sure. You know, and as COVID was kind of shut down, you know, people are starting to work from homes now. They're not going into the office, you know, and that was after we had the first round of stimulus money. You know, what we were noticing uh, as we started to get really buyer heavy, which was not something that was out of the normal, but when there's no inventory to show, uh, we started to see a trend really start. Now, is that is that nationwide? Because I've heard it locally and I know some people out in Arizona and Florida, but is it just a real, did it become in general a big inventory problem across the whole country? I do believe so, yes. Uh, I've got several friends throughout the country. We've got investors that are out in Colorado uh, who buy properties where we are out in the Northeast. They've seen a shortage out where they are. There's a shortage where we are. I've got family that does real estate down in the D.C. area and on the phone with them all the time. And it's the same thing. You know, we, we believe that this is, you know, kind of nationwide. And a lot of it has to do with the pandemic. Sure. Now, is it is it an election year? Is it a pandemic? What what actually goes into creating a shortage of inventory in the real estate market? So I believe a lot with this, it's almost like the perfect storm of events. You know, we're coming into an election year. We have a president that some people love, some people don't like, and then a new president coming in that we're just, we're not sure what's going to happen. Okay. You know, and then having the interest rates being at all-time lows, you know, so now people that couldn't necessarily afford a house, when you're talking a point to two points lower just in your interest, that equals out to be about $150 to $200 that you're saving on your mortgage alone. So now people that couldn't necessarily afford a house, now they can because the rates are lower. And these people want to get out of their apartments. They want to take advantage of the low rates because they'll stay with you for 15 to 30 years. So speak to that. Speak to that. Uh, what are some of the basic – and I don't mean to sound like this is a stupid question, but we want to give everybody out there a lot of information. Basic advantages and disadvantages, differences between renting and owning a home. So owning a home, you're building your own equity. You know, renting, you're basically paying someone else to just stay there. You know, where when you own the home – 
not every dollar uh, that goes into your monthly payment goes into your pocket essentially because you've got the interest on those loans. But you're having the piece of the American dream, which everyone calls it. You know, you're having something that's your own space. You can do your own things. So you have your own yard for your kids to play in, for your dogs to play in, rather than being locked into, even if it's a single family home renting, you know, that's that's not your property. So everyone wants a piece of the American dream, which is to own a home. And now that the rates have been so low, and you've got stimulus money, there's the ability to be able to do that. So you have so many buyers that are flooding the market at one time. And on the flip side, you've got sellers that are very hesitant to let people in there. We found that that it was quite a challenge. So as we did get listing appointments in, our company actually invested in what's called a Matterport, which is a 3D camera. So we actually started doing 3D tours in homes. So now you have the ability as a buyer, instead of looking at still photos, you can now be at home in front of your computer and you can virtually walk through the home. You can see the way that the rooms are laid out. There's measurement tools in there. And we actually found that to be very, very helpful. And we got a lot of feedback from that. And there was actually several properties that we were actually able to sell without even having the buyer go into the home except for the first time in their home inspection. Wow. So that's and, – and that's amazing. And let's go back to the rent versus own. Um, you know, most rental – uh, companies will try and tell you the opposite. But if you look at national figures, as of March of last year, the national average rent uh, was $1,430. And that can't be too far off from having a mortgage of your own, I would imagine. No, absolutely not. And especially in the Northeast, rents typically tend to be a little bit higher uh, than they are in some other parts of the country. And on an average $200,000 home, putting down, depending on what your credit score is, because now banks don't require 20% down, you can put down as little as 3% in a conventional you're talking of a mortgage right around that same amount, which is including your homeowner's insurance as well. But now you're getting a certain percentage of that is going into equity that you have in the home. Did, did the banks just change with the times because every generation grew up, saved 20% for putting down on your home? Is it just changed with the times and because people have so many financing, banking options? Is it a generational thing? Uh, there's lots of uh, articles that can back up that say millennials, you know, don't necessarily feel that way. So what caused the banks to change? Did, did, did the public and and how people purchase and live do that? Uh, I believe that's part of it. But also the home prices back in the you know 50s and 60s, you could get a house for $50,000, $60,000. So you know, to save up 20%, even though the, the it's a sliding scale in the math, but nowadays, I mean, the, the average uh, starter home in this area is around $250,000 for a first-time home buyer. So to save up 20%, $50,000, that's, that's quite a bit of money for someone. You know, where back in the in the '60s, you know, it wasn't as much. Sure. And it's a lot of it's based on credit. You know, your typical conventional loan was a standard twenty percent down, and then the government has programs. Uh, FHA is a great example. First time home buyers, you can put a, as little as three percent, three and a half percent down. Where now we're seeing a lot of conventional loans at actually three percent, which is even less than the FHA. Okay, so let's let's jump back and talk about credit because that's a concern. Uh, I know from other uh, shows that I've done that on average, somewhere between seventy six and eighty two percent of all Americans don't even have one thousand dollars in a savings account, and, and that kind of speaks to the economy and the way that many Americans live, um, paycheck to paycheck. So something like credit has got to be a huge part 
of the equation when they're getting home. So whether it's me and I want to refinance and I've got six months to a year to plan or I'm someone who is tired of living in the parents' basement or renting and I want to plan, what what can they do from a credit standpoint? Not necessarily raise their score, but of what importance when it comes time to get a mortgage are they going to look at? Because they're going to look at your whole old profile. They're going to look at student loans the most, credit card debt. What are some things people can do proactively to get their credit in that prime spot uh, to get the best uh, finance rates? Uh, there's a lot of different – there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, obviously, making your monthly payments on time uh, and at the minimums are you know obviously the most important. Those are the things that the banks typically look at. You know, Does this person make their payments on time? Uh, we say a lot to our clients is, you know, during the process, you don't want to really fluctuate a lot from your regular spending habits. You know, you don't want to necessarily close out credit cards. You don't want to necessarily go and, you know, pay off a, a huge chunk of debt. You know, you want to stay consistent. Be, you know, stay consistent in what you were doing over the course of the last year, two years, you know, to get to the point that you're at. And banks, I believe, have learned quite a bit as to what happened in the financial crash back in 06, 07, 08, you know, with giving out bad loans. I mean, you could have a credit score sub 600s back then and the banks would give you a loan essentially if you had a heartbeat. Now, I think that the, the federal government has kind of stepped in a little bit and they've learned from that. And now your credit score needs to be a little bit higher. But yeah, making sure that you have those monthly payments paid on time uh, is really going to help you out. Try to, you know, not go into debt for the simplest of things. I know people say that, you know, you need credit cards, you know, to build your FICO score, which is important, but you don't want to have so many open cards, you know, even if they have low balances, because now a bank can look at it and say, okay, he's got, you know, five credit cards with $10,000 balances. Now, even though, you know, there's, there's not a, a, a large balance on them, Tomorrow, he could go out and rack up $50,000. They've got the potential. Absolutely. So you want to try to keep that down to a minimum. It is good to maybe have one or two cards. Uh, If you have an auto loan payment, that's fine. Student loans. A lot of people have student loans these days. But, you know, try to consistently keep up your payments, keep the balances low, and don't have a diversified amount of credit. So uh, let me make a comment on what Bobby's saying uh, for those of you listening out there. Uh, This is from The Motley Fool. Imagine you borrow $200,000 for a home and your strong credit lands you a 3.75% interest rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage. That translates roughly into a monthly payment of about $926. But if your credit score isn't as good and you're approved for a loan with an interest rate of 5.25% instead, your monthly payment will be just over $1,104. That's a huge difference, both in the short and the long term, because life's going to happen. You're going to have kids. You're going to have medical issues. You're going to want to go on vacations and and that couple extra hundred dollars right out of the gate that you could either be paying it down and at some point maybe go down to a 15-year mortgage or just have the extra money to put into savings. It's got to be huge. It's a big investment. Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of things, again, we talk to our clients, you know, when, when we have our first kind of consultation because, you know, we want to see where they're at financially, you know, where, you know, we don't get into details on, you know, their, how much they have in the bank or, you know, what all of their debts are unless, you know, they want to talk to us about that. But typically, you know, what we say to our clients is to purchase a home, if you have excellent credit, you're going to need a minimum of 3% to put down. But we try to plan for maybe having somewhere in the range of 5 per, uh, five to 7% to put down on the home. And then you also have to factor in closing costs, which uh, a lot of banks 
Some will work into the loan, some won't, depending on the loan program. But that's usually going to be about another 3 to 4% of the purchase price of the home, which a lot of people don't consider. And like I said, you can roll that into the loan. But what we have found is that it's best to keep the cash on hand for whether or not you want to do updates, you know, because no home that you buy is going to be absolutely perfect. Sure. You know, so keeping some of the cash that you have in a savings account, you don't want to necessarily wipe it dry to get into a home because you do want to have, you know, that little bit in an emergency fund in case of a rainy day. It, it, it seems, I mean, I, I did it, everyone I know did it. You make some concession. Maybe you get the home you want in the city you want or close to work or out in the country or near the beach, but you know you're going to have to update the kitchen at some point or hardwood floors. You're talking those types of things. Don't just right out of day one. Know that you just invested in something for 15, 30, 40 years. You know, whether you're going to move on, you're going to use it as an investment property. You've got time to do those things over time. No need to close on a Friday and go spend 80000 at Home Depot or Lowe's the next day. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're in there for the long haul. I mean, we've had clients uh, who have, you know, talked to us about this and they've gone in and, you know, they've got their X, Y, and Z of all these great things that they want to do. And we've almost kind of had to talk them off of a ledge because, you know, especially for a first-time home buyer, you need to see what it's like to be in a house because it's not just the mortgage payment that you're going to have. You're going to have your utility payments. You're going to have, you know, potentially tax bills if they're not escrowed in. You know, cable internet, you know, electric, all those things add up. Grocery money, you know, these these are expenses that, you know, depending on what your living station was situation was before, you're not necessarily going to be used to. So get into the home, live there for three to six months, get used to your expenses, and then see what you want to do with the house. You may not want to change this or change that. You know, a lot of people watch HGTV now. <laughs> Which uh, I'm going to touch on next. <laughs> you know, but get in there and, and live in the home, see what you like, see what you don't like, you know, before you immediately go in there with a hammer, you know, on the very first day that you own it. And now you've gotten yourself in way over your head. And now you're calling us in to go in and fix it. You know, just live in there for a little bit, enjoy it, and then make a plan. You know, and what to speak to what Bobby said, you know, things as simple as I have a lot of landscaping that requires mulch. So that's an investment every year. We bought the house and we just happen to live in a section of our city where there's no natural gas line. And so we have to have an underground propane tank. I found out our first winter spending fifteen to $1,800 a month in propane because it was our hot water, it was our heat for the house, and it was our stove. So over time, switch over to electric, switch over to pellet stoves switch over to a there's a lot of things that you don't realize and they come up over time and yes there are things for major things the tree falls and then there's insurance and and that type of thing but there's a lot that goes into the day-to-day maintenance uh of of where you're going to live and so you know let's jump to what you what you were saying about hgtv that that Probably in those types of shows, on top of the fact that they make it look like you can completely revamp a home in 30 minutes, I'll never forget, and I'm sure people will chuckle listening to this, that every time I turn on an episode, it seems to be a woman in her mid-20s who says... I worked 10 hours a week at the local pharmacy and my husband is the assistant assistant manager at the local auto parts store. Our budget's $850,000. And I'm like, what the hell did I do wrong in life? I was actually on a family vacation out in California. And this is back in 016, 017. 
And uh, I was walking around and I saw this realtor's office and I went in and was just talking to him because having lived in California, I recognized a lot of the backgrounds as being from out west from some of these shows. And I said, what what am I doing wrong? How are they affording this? Because I'm just doing the math of what those mortgages must be like in my head. And she said, well, you know, we get a lot of 60-year mortgages. And I, I said, hold on, back up. Are you saying if I graduate high school at 18 years old, buy a house the next day, I have a mortgage on that house until I'm 78. She's like, yep. I go, what about 40-year mortgages? Yeah, we see a share of those. I go, 30-year mortgages? And she laughed at me. She says, honey, if you live in California and you're getting a 30-year mortgage, you're just going to pay cash for the house. Um, So tell me about you know, regardless of age and regardless of client and no specifics, but what do you see as expectation levels in maybe first time home buyers that you kind of have to educate them on? So yeah, expectations is huge, uh, you know, and especially for the first time home buyer because they're just, you know, and especially with today's generation, I mean, everything is just so instant in between. You can buy a car and have it delivered and never go to the lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it, and it does work to our advantage, as I was talking about earlier, you know, with like the, the social media and the 3D walkthroughs. I mean, the technology is what, you know, the younger generation likes to see. But on the flip side of that, you know, you do see the unrealistic uh, expectations of like you were talking about HGTV, you know, where they take a crappy house and in 30 minutes, actually 22, when you figure in the, the commercials and it's brand new, you know, and you don't see all the nonsense that goes on behind, you know, and typically what we've seen as well with some of our listings and going on our listing appointments, you know, we get these clients that they want us to come in there and, you know, they want to do X, Y, and Z, and they want to put $40,000 into a house that they've already made up their mind on selling, you know, so a lot of times we're, we're talking, you know, our, our listing clients off the shelf and be like, hey, basically all we want to do is we want to get your house marketable to the most amount of people because all the buyers that come through the door, they're watching the same HD TV shows that you are and they want to do their own spin on things. And what we found is, you know, really what we want to see is just some neutral paint colors, you know, a declutter, and really that helps to sell the house, you know, and with these first time buyers, uh, as I was talking about earlier, you know, they really want to come in and, and do all of these grand things. And it's excellent. You know, some of them have some great ideas, but it's just not realistic. You know, I have a, a contractor's background as well, and there's walls that it's going to cost a lot of money to take out. It's not like you see on TV where they can just rip this thing out. You know, there's a lot of trades that go on behind the scenes, mm-hmm. um, permitting, you know, there's just there, there's so much that's involved that they just don't know. And I think a lot of that is just because what you see on TV seems very, very easy. And it's just not always the case. So I have a little bit of experience with that. Uh, my wife and I, several years ago, through her employer, were able to work on uh, that TV show that was hugely popular on Sunday nights on ABC, uh, Extreme Home Makeover. And... It's very funny when you get to see the behind the scenes, first of all, from a construction standpoint, because I have facilities in construction and my personal background, everything was just trucked in overnight prefab. So when you see all these volunteers and they're in the blue shirts, how how many times do you need 80 people to hold some conduit or some pipe for you? Um, here's a more interesting thing I saw about that. You have a family that can't afford a house, can't afford a mortgage. They find the biggest sob story. They've had a personal loss. There's 
some type of deficit in their life. They've, they've overcome all these struggles. And you take them in a neighborhood of maybe 150 to 180 to $200,000 houses. You give them a four or $500,000 house and it's free and they love it and they move that bus and everything's great. And then here's what happens. Maybe they couldn't afford an $800 a month mortgage and it, it just, the house kind of went to shit. Well, guess what they just inherited with that $500,000 house? A forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollar a year tax bill. So now they went from an eight hundred dollar mortgage that they can't afford to no mortgage, but a tax bill of fifteen hundred dollars a month. And you can go online and you can see story after story. It's horrible for anybody to have to go through the pain or embarrassment of losing a house. But what about when everyone in your community came and worked for free and everything was free from everyone and you have to give up that house and then go see those people at the local diner or the local store or local work. So really, it's not all what it's cracked up to be on TV, you know, Um so what are some other tips you would give to let's let's dial it down to first time home buyers. Um we're coming out of a covid market, there's stimulus, there's tax refunds. Um let's we'll get into some of the myths of best time to buy uh different times of year and things like that. So we've talked about the 20% uh down and maybe they're renting a place, maybe they're, you know, living with their parents. Um what are really the best three pieces of advice you could give somebody buying a house for the very first time? Yeah, I would say for the first time buyers, you know, just take your time, you know, enjoy the process. You know, this is something that's going to be with you for, you know, the next 15 to potentially 30 years, you know, really continue to save up. If you haven't found, you know, the, the perfect house that works for you, continue to save, continue to work on your credit. And, and really, uh, one of the most important things, too, is to really just trust your local real estate agent. You know, they're the expert in wherever your market is, whether, you know, you're in the Northeast, the Southwest, whatever that looks like for you, just really, you know, take the time and trust them because they know that market. So let me ask you a question, Bobby. If you got a really bad toothache and you let it go for a couple of days and then it turned into a bad cavity and then it abscessed, um, if I gave you some of the tools that I think they use in a dentist's office, would you try and remove that tooth yourself? Oh, absolutely not. Who would you go to? You go to a dentist. Why? Because they're a professional in that line of work. So let me ask you this. Um, you see a lot of sell by owner, and I can't help but think that it's for no other reason that, well, all they got to do is, you know, file some paperwork and get some permitting stuff. And, I, you know, why am I going to give somebody a three, four, five percent profit uh, that I could put back in my own? pocket. What are some of the hazards of selling by owner yourself? Well, some of the, the hazards of for sale by owners is they just, they don't know the markets. You know, they don't know how to target the potential buyers out there. They don't have access to the MLS, which is probably the most important because the MLS is what all of the other companies out there pull from, such as your Zillow, which is your number one realtor, Trulia. You know, what people don't realize is that everything goes on the MLS first and those third-party sites actually pull from that. And that's where people are actually shopping for these homes. Zillow does have their for sale by owner portion, which you do have to pay in, but you're not tapping into the other markets as well. And really, you don't know how to market the property either. You know, when it comes time to do showings, you know, dealing with other agents, dealing with contracts, there's there's quite a bit that goes into it than just punching in some numbers and putting it online. 
And I would say, you know, another big important piece of that is as a for sale by owner, you are emotionally invested in this home. So you're going to be dealing with people coming to your house. They may say great things. They may critique it. And if they critique it, you're going to have an emotional response to that. And as a real estate professional, we rely strictly on math. What's the price per square foot? What is the house condition versus, you know, what the other conditions of the other comps are in the area? You know, so as a, as a realtor, we can take the emotion out of the equation and it gives us the ability to see clearly. You know, we can negotiate on your behalf for you to get the best possible price for you with other agents where you trying to negotiate, you're going to think that, Oh, they said this about my living room or they didn't like that color. Well, I'm sorry. It's, that's probably the case, but it comes down to math. What's the house worth? Sure. Okay. So let's jump off now. I think we've had a, you know, a lot of great information for first home buyers. Um, let's go to the next category. Let's talk about people who are selling because, you know, you kind of have to give tough love, I imagine, because you go to a four o'clock appointment and you've looked at six houses of people that want to sell and hire your company. And you've had to have conversations about, you know, uh, the number of bathrooms or what's popular. You know, you know the trends. Uh, what are some obstacles you have to come over because you're walking into something where something's emotionally invested? I get an email maybe once a month out of the blue. Uh, we've been in our house about 10 years now. And it says, here's your current Zillow Z estimate. And it's kind of a funny number to look at. We're not selling, but you know, it's funny the information. By the, uh, Do you find that by the time they have the realtor come over, they've kind of pieced together what they think houses are going for? And you know, we're in a market where I've heard of people selling their houses for 30, 60, 80,000 over asking price, not realizing you still have to reinvest that because someone's going to sell that to you and, and make that profit. Um, but what do you try and do to educate people who are selling their homes on the process, about patience, about if they want to move into another house and have that set first so that they're, they're you know, seamlessly transitioning? Kind of tell us the expectation level you try and set with people trying to sell their home. So going into a listing appointment, there's there's a lot of expectations, again, that we kind of set up front because there's so much information out there on the market, like you referenced the Zillow's estimate. You know, that is something as realtors that we have to work up against. Now, sometimes as estimates close, most of the time it's not. So typically what we do is we do what's called a CMA, a comparative market analysis. And I have that done prior to actually walking into the listing appointment. And what that does is it gives me the ability, I look at comps in the area, you know, gives us pictures, square footages, you know, and we try to find comparable properties in the specific towns more or less school systems, you know, and then we come up with a range of a low to a high of what we feel that the house will sell for. Uh, and then from there, what we do is we actually sit down with the client, go into their home, and that range gives us basically the condition of the home. If the house is a complete train wreck, we're going to price it on the lower half. If the house is fantastic, we can go to the upper half of that range. Uh, and what we usually say with our listing uh, appointments as well to the sellers is there's two trains of thought. We can, you know, try to maximize the amount of money that we can get for your home, but it may take a little bit longer. So if time is more important for you, then we're probably going to want to list this house on the lower end of that range. But if you have all the time in the world and you're trying to maximize the amount of money that you're going to make on it, well, then we can kind of shoot for a higher price point. Houses that are overpriced and houses that are under contract. That's the two types that you run into? Yep. Yeah. And, and usually you would know where you sit after about 14 to 21 days. 
So if after between that time frame, you're getting a lot of showings, but no offers, you're close to the price that you need to be at for whatever the market is, but you're not quite there where people want to put in offers because not everyone wants to do a low insulting offer. Now, if you're not getting any showings at all, then you're just clearly way overpriced. And if you're getting showings and offers, then you know you're, you're, you're right there on price. Uh, and, and it's also important to know as a seller, you don't need to accept any offer. You could be asking $150,000 for your house. Someone could walk in the next day, offer you $200,000 cash, and at no point are you obligated to say yes. So pricing is very, very important because every single house will sell for the right price. You could have a house that needs to be completely torn down, or you could have a house that's made of 24 karat gold. And at whatever price point it is, it will sell. And that's the most important thing that you can focus on. Okay. So let's just say it's not a horrible house. It's not a brand new three-year-old house. It's an average house that has wear and tear. Um, maybe there's a few issues with the roof. Maybe the cabinets need updating. Maybe the flooring. Let's just say it's kind of an average condition and my wife and I are getting ready to sell our house and say, you know what? We've got about 10, 15, 20, 30,000 dollars laying around that we want to invest in this because maybe it will turn into a, an additional 60 or 80,000 dollar profit and they say, you know, hey Bobby, you know, what would you prioritize for us that that are popular things to update that will help us sell this house more? Uh, I would probably say in my opinion are kitchens and baths. You know, kitchens and baths really do help to sell houses, uh, depending on what your yard's like, decks as well, or decks or patios, you know, because people love outdoor space. But you just want to be careful. You don't want to do what's called pricing yourself out of the neighborhood. You don't want to put so much money into the house that when it comes time to sell it, you're not necessarily going to recoup that back. But if you did have a good chunk of money to, to put into the house, I would probably say, yeah, either updating the kitchen or updating the bathroom, going with a nice neutral paint color always helps. We know so many people affected by COVID worldwide, nationwide, that so much of the workforce, there are, there are nationwide international companies that said employees can work from home from now on. So people really are spending more time at home. They're looking for that extra space. Are you seeing more surges of that of, well, it's also going to be my home office or, you know, the remote learning for the children space. So are, are they looking for more space, bigger space, or just quality space or more options with the space of, at the what they're looking at. Yeah, I would agree with that. A lot of our clients, and we're getting a lot more that are moving from these larger cities into the suburbs. And yeah, that's one of the things that's on their priority list, where before it may have been, you know, they want a big open kitchen concept or, you know, a, enough of a big of a backyard to put a pool in. But yeah, we're, we're seeing that we want to have more of an office space because again, working from home, uh, like you said, there's a lot of people out there that are homeschooling. And even gym spaces, you know, a lot of people are looking for garages, not necessarily to park their cars in, but because of what happened with COVID, gyms were shut down. People still want to have that active lifestyle. So they want that extra space, you know, to be able to work out at home. Yeah. And I get that. So, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about this. Let's talk about the the lending in the mortgage process. And this could be for new buyers, sellers, refi, kind of what's the landscape of options look like other than someone just late at night after it's quiet, jumping on lending tree and just waiting for a million people to get in touch with them. What are some smart options to look at from the lending and mortgage side of things? 
I would always recommend going with a local broker. Uh, and the reason I say that is because there's going to be a person that's going to be there that you can potentially meet with face to face and they're not sitting in some office halfway across the country. You know, we've seen more deals fall apart with our buyers. Our buyers chose to go with a huge national brand, which they saw on TV or got a Facebook ad like a Quicken or a Lending Tree or even a Marisave. Uh, and I'll give you a quick little example. So my wife and I, we just refinanced our home uh, recently just because the rates, again, are, are absolutely fantastic. And knowing that some of these larger lenders can, you know, they, they sometimes you can get better rates on them. But the communication is going to be absolutely horrible. So we decided to go with one of these big box uh, lending kind of yeah, institutions. It, exactly. Yep. Uh, you know, because we were already in the home, there wasn't a risk of us potentially losing it. And I'll tell you, it was the worst experience ever. And typically, you know, this is a conversation that we have with a lot of our buyers is to stick with a local broker. It's someone you can see. It's someone you can talk with. You know, they, they, they're going to get to know you a little bit more intimately than someone on the other end of a computer or someone on the other end of a phone halfway across the country. And they'll actually have the ability to be able to help you out more because they care more about you. And on a listing side, you know, we take that into consideration as well. You know, the, one of the, one of the things that we look for is, Where's the pre-approval from, you know? And if we see some of these, you know, lenders that are in our quote unquote black book or some of these larger lenders, we'll tell, you know, the the potential offer, hey, we'll accept your offer, but we're not going with this mortgage broker, you know? And a lot of that is because they're just subpar and we've seen too many deals fall apart because of lack of communication or what they'll do is they will pre-approve you on the front end, you know, and, and give you all this hope. But in all reality, you're not actually qualified for this loan. And we've seen that time and time again with a lot of these big boxes where, you know, some of the local brokers, they'll tell you up front, like, hey, you can't afford a $300,000 house. You can only afford 240000 And I guarantee you, you can go to one of these big boxes and they'll write you a pre-approval for three hundred, And then you'll be two weeks away from the closing. It'll go to underwriting. And all of a sudden, your loan got denied. And we've just seen that happen time and time again. So I would suggest to go to a local broker. And it's really, I guess the best analogy is, um, and I'm sorry for anybody out there who does business with them. I have no personal experience, but our TVs are inundated with uh, insurance commercials for Geico and Progressive and the general, all those commercials with Shaq. Um, I have no idea if they're based out of Minnesota, St. Louis, Florida, Austin, Texas, San Francisco. I know if I have an issue with my homeowner's insurance and I actually had some hail damage, I was able to go to my insurance agent two miles from my house and go see my agent and talk to her in person and work out what I needed. If there's an issue with one of our vehicles or we've had an accident, you know, I'm not waiting to get a call back to a quote member of the team. And I imagine because of the experiences you've had, you know how that story is going to end. So you would rather sever that relationship with the client because it's going to make you look bad. They're just going to look, our realtor told us this and we couldn't. And then the lender told us and we couldn't. It's like you don't want to do business with businesses that do bad business. Yeah, absolutely. And as a realtor, I mean, you really are the glue that holds a transaction together. You know, you're in communication with the other agents, you're in communication with the attorneys, with the lenders. So, you know, you want to make sure that you have a team that you're familiar with. 
that can get you to the finish line because, you know, buying a house is one of the top five stressors in life, you know, and, and as a realtor, it can be stressful for us because there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that, you know, buyers and sellers just don't see. And this is just, you know, lack of communication from, you know, attorneys, from lenders, you know, bad lending. You know, again, we've had several deals fall apart, you know, essentially a week before closing because, you know, the underwriter found something that happened years ago, you know, which should have been found in the front half. And a lot of these bigger, you know, mortgage companies out there, you know, they just look at a quick little, all right, what's, how much do they make? How much are their expenses out? Yeah, perfect. Here's a large dollar amount. And then we'll, we'll figure it out afterwards. And I imagine part of that process, because people truly don't realize, especially first time home buyers, the team, it takes a village to get you where you need to in the house. And a big part of it, a huge part of it is the inspection and the home inspection. I imagine some of these bigger box companies that you know, you're referring to probably just have a certain amount of quota that they just shovel to a home inspector who might live an hour, 30 minutes, two hours from your house, you don't know. And all they do is just go around and do quick inspections because they're getting a, a type of commission and they might not take the care of of someone maybe local who you can go back or call back and they're not off to three other states doing something. I mean, talk about how important the home inspection is and the things that can reveal and the, the issues that can maybe come up or that you've seen with an improper home inspection. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the home inspection is one of the most important things that you can do uh, because they're, it's basically almost like a preventative maintenance. You know, they're coming in there and they're telling you, you know, we see X, Y, and Z, which is wrong with this house. Or, you know, here's something that we're noticing, but, you know, this is what you should do to kind of keep an eye on it. You know, a lot of times when you get the reports at the end, you know, they really look and sound worse than what they really are. Uh, but it does give you the ability because the most important thing is it's, it's a contingency, right? And all your offers, the home inspection is a contingency. Sure. And what that means is that's the ability for you to exit the contract where your deposit is protected. You know, we will see sometimes on certain homes where buyers will waive the home inspection because either A, they're going to make a whole bunch of renovations, they're handy, you know, they really don't care. Um, but a lot of times, you know, as a, as a first time buyer or any buyer, really, you know, you really want to have a home inspection done and you want to have it done by a qualified person. You know, you want someone who has been in this business for a long time, who knows what they're talking about, you know, who maybe has the tools, you know, to, to get the job done. I mean, we have some home inspectors that we work with. They show up every single time with a drone and they'll fly their drone up. They'll look, you know, close at chimney flashings. They'll look at the mortar joints. You know, they'll, they'll do a, a close inspection of a, of a roof shingle. You know, a lot of them won't necessarily give you, uh, you know, time frames just because of insurances they can't, you know, so they can't tell you that, hey, this roof only has three or four years left. You know, in each particular field, you want to, you know, qualify or, uh, have a, a certified uh, person that specifies is in that area, but a home inspection, you know, going overall is just a fantastic thing to have. Nice. So uh, we're going to talk briefly about closing costs and then um, we're going to come close to wrapping up talking about careers in real estate. So, you know, closing costs run into thousands of dollars and some people are just ignorant and say, you know, uh, uh, I just know closing costs are a lot and I don't want to pay them. I want the other person to pay them to buy the seller. What are some just general rules of thumb regarding closing costs and kind of regardless of how expensive or how much money, $200,000, $2 million a person spending, kind of 
what goes into creating the closing costs and, and what should the expectation level be? You know, what are all these fees for and all these documents and loans and appraisals and everything? So a lot of what goes into the closing costs, I would say roughly 50% of it is actually going to be your escrows. Uh, and what your escrows are is your taxes and insurance. Um, and a lot of that has to be paid up front because as soon as you start that mortgage process, depending on what time of year it is, your taxes may be due. And if that money is not being paid into the bank every month, the, the bank's not going to want to dish out the money right up front. So they'll build it into your closing costs. You know, you've got attorney's fees in there. Attorneys aren't typically that expensive. Your loan origination, uh, all your loan application fees and the origination fees, those can get kind of pricey. Typically, what we see on average, you can anticipate is going to be about 3% of whatever the purchase price is, you can kind of factor in for your closing costs. So that could be somewhere as little as three or $4,000. We've seen closing costs up in the range of $20,000. You know, and another recommendation I would do uh, is because rates are so low, if you have the ability to work the closing costs in, you know, people say, oh, we want the sellers to pay for the closing costs. Well, the sellers really aren't paying for the closing costs. What you're doing is you're actually working the closing costs into your mortgage and the sellers are giving it a credit back, but the net to them still stays the same. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a $200,000 house okay. for easy math, all right? Okay. And your closing costs are going to be 3%. So call it, you're going to be about 7,500 bucks for your closing costs, all right? So now what you can do is instead of offering $200,000 for the house, you're going to pay $7,500 in closing costs, which is going to come out of your pocket. You can offer $207,500 for the house and then ask the seller to credit back $7,500. So the seller still nets their $200,000 and basically you're just working the closing costs into the loan. Or another, another way to think of it is if you go to buy a car. You know, you can either pay the sales tax out of the pocket yes. or you can work the sales tax in a loan. It's essentially the same thing. And with interest rates being so low, you know, right around 3% to 3.5%, depending on what your credit score is, I mean, th those closing costs is, is really probably going to equate to maybe a few dollars per month. But to have an extra $7,500 in your bank account to use towards a renovation or an update or whatever you right. want. Emergency savings, anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if interest rates were a lot higher, okay, maybe it's worth it to kind of pay out of pocket. But we recommend that if you have the ability and if you want to, I would work it into the offer. Providing the house appraises, because that's always a, a, a tricky thing, especially now, is the appraisal. Um, you know, we've run into instances where, you know, the closing cost credit just didn't exist anymore because the house didn't appraise. So then, you know, you have to go back to the negotiating table and work that out. But yeah, I, I would absolutely recommend to work the closing costs in. Great. Well, it, it's been a, you know, a bunch of great information for people on all levels uh, regarding the housing market. So let's close with this. Um, I've got a job like everybody else and I've got some free time and I know some people who are realtors and I've heard them brag about some of their commissions. It must be just like a little easy side gig. Like what advice would you give to somebody who wanted to A, just dabble in real estate on the side uh, and become an agent or B, start a career in it, either from your experiences or, or what you've seen other people who do it kind of full-time, full-throttle or part-time, half-ass. What experience would you give to someone uh, looking to get into the field? 
again, it's all about just setting the expectations. It's not like you see on million dollar listing. You know, there's two things that you will never get back in this industry and that's money and time. And you really, you get out of it what you put into it. You know, the harder that you want to work at it, the more that you can be rewarded, you know, and it's, it's a huge sacrifice. You know, for me, I have a family, I have a wife, I have a son, a newborn on the way. And, you know, people don't see houses between nine and five because that's when they're at work. They want to see houses at five, six, seven o'clock at night. They want to see houses on the weekend. So, you know, your days, you're literally in front of a computer. You know, you may be on the phone with attorneys, lenders, you're researching properties for your clients. And then the real work starts, you know, at 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night when the clients are getting out of work and you're out there showing houses until 7, 8 o'clock at night sometimes. And then you weekends, you got your open houses. So it's it's not as glitz and glamour as it seems to be on TV, but it is a lot of fun, you know. And, and like I said in the beginning, you know, setting the expectations that, you know, the harder that you work at it, the more that you can make and the fun that you can have. And your own, you're your own boss. You know, you make your own hours. You know, you have your own schedule. There's no one that pays you any type of a flat fee. So if you're not out there working and grinding it, you don't earn commissions and you don't get paid. Exactly. So that is going to wrap up today's segment, uh, talking about real estate. And hopefully you guys got some really useful information. Bobby, thank you so much for uh, coming into the studio and talking with us. If people had more questions in general or just wanted to have a chat with you, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, I would direct them over to our website, The Covenant Group. Dot org. Uh, you can search myself, Robert. Uh, there's emails, there's phone numbers. Feel free to reach out, ask us any questions. We're here to help. All right. Thank you so much for coming, Bob. Will you come back soon? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks. All right, you guys. That is a wrap on our season for the Something to Say podcast. say. You guys have a safe summer. Get out, enjoy, get back to your normal lives. We're going to be back to you later this August and September with some amazing guests. Have a great summer, everyone.